Hey everyone, I'm Eric Peckham, and this is the Monetizing Media Podcast. My whole focus is breaking down business opportunities across media, entertainment, and gaming. I'm joined by a leading entrepreneur, executive, or investor in most episodes to share tactical insights about the strategy of their company, an investment thesis they have, or topics like business models, pricing, and creating loyal fans. My guest today is Jeff Cohn, the founder and CEO of TopFan. TopFan is a platform for musicians, sports teams, movie studios, and others who have large fan bases to create online community portals with paid memberships, exclusive e-commerce, virtual events, and other special benefits. The White Label solution acts as a fan CRM and monetization tool for over 100 partners, like musicians Pitbull, The Lumineers, Maroon 5, and the Zac Brown Band, sports teams like the Denver Broncos NFL team, and Hollywood studios like Lionsgate, MGM, Warner Brothers, and Fox. Jeff, thanks for joining today. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into the business of Top Fan and more broadly, the landscape right now of monetizing super fans and pulling that core fan base amongst the larger, broader social media fandom into owned communities in some form. Can you just give us a little bit better context of where Top Fan stands right now in terms of the number of communities it has, the you know, number of clients it's working with? Yeah, so TopFan started back in 2015. Uh, at the time, we were mostly focused on uh, individual celebrities and athletes. And uh, what we learned over time that, that a better business model for us and for our clients was to focus on the following verticals, music artists, uh, sports teams, uh, film and television franchises, and interest topics and associations. So that, that represents our, our four core verticals. Um, you know, with the pandemic uh, that we're, you know, we're, we're working our way through here, our business has actually flourished uh, in that our clients all had to look for new ways to engage their fans when they weren't able to do in-person events. So, you know, Top Fan, as, as you know, is a, is a technology platform. Everything we do is white labeled. So we're sort of the engine underneath the hood uh, of our clients' out, you know, uh, platform that they're they're extending to their end audience. Um, we are very good at sort of the three C's: that is, content, community, and commerce, and creating a way for our clients, the the, the various entities I mentioned before, to deliver those three C's to their end audience in a digital first format. So uh, that means a white labeled website. It means a native iOS and Android app that the fans can install on their phones. It also means being able to, to cast and deliver that content on the big screen television in the living room. So that's that's the areas that we're, we're currently focused on and, and seeing, and seeing uh, really nice growth, uh, mostly again, because of the, the pandemic. And this is also a, a CRM of your core fans at the same time. That's right. So that's that's a big value proposition for our clients, and I and I would say that it's probably one of the the, the number one reasons clients turn to Top Fan, and that is finally knowing who their best fans are. You know, when you look at the economics of fandoms, um, it's usually the top ten or twenty percent of the fan base that generates eighty to ninety percent of the income. These are the fans that buy the tickets, buy the latest in you know the case of music, uh, buy the latest album, go to the concerts, um, you know, buy the merchandise. So it's really important, uh, especially in a, in, a, in a situation where a lot of things have moved virtual, to know who those best fans are, understand their psychographics, their demographics, 
and, and have the conduit to be able to interact with them directly. One thing that's interesting about our platform is it is a sponge uh, that is collecting all sorts of interesting data points about each of these super fans. So when people come into these communities, they can come in for free and they can look around like a traditional website, but very quickly they end up wanting to register. They want to register because they want to be able to interact with other fans. They want to participate in contests. They want to produce their own user-generated content. They want to feel like they're part of a community. That becomes the building block to start building these very interesting uh, you know, uh, profiles about these users. And so our system you know, initially creates things like you know, the email address, the age, the gender, the geographic location. But over time, it adds a lot of data points to that user's profile. We know what songs they're listening to. We know what videos they're watching. We know what merchandise they're purchasing. We know what they're talking about with their friends inside the community. Uh, we know uh, what concerts they're going to. So eventually you have this very robust 360 degree uh, you know, business model, or I should say you know, profile, user profile of each of these users. And then we take it a step further where we give our clients the ability to build segments of that data. So they can go in and be very specific and say, who are all the females that are in San Antonio, Texas, that all uh, listen to this song or, listen, or you know, this podcast or watch this video, and then be able to send just that subset of users a targeted push notification that deep links them into a piece of merch they might want to purchase. Or, uh, you know, if they're trying to figure out their tour routing, which where they should go and do concerts and things like that, they can segment those users. And that obviously becomes very powerful. And, I, and I'd say, that, you know, what's most interesting about that is when they work with us, they own that data outright. We don't own it. Uh, our terms and conditions and services uh, service uh, to, to the client says explicitly that they own that data. Facebook doesn't own it. Instagram doesn't own it. TikTok doesn't own it. They own it. And that's really helping them generate long-term enterprise value because those are the fans that are going to be important for the next 5, 10, 25 years ahead. And the ability for them to maximize the revenues per fan is something that that resonates strongly with our clients. Yeah, I mean, the, the I guess, two fundamental challenges with just having your fan base on social media is A, that lack of ownership of the audience, right? You don't have their contact information and ability to bring them elsewhere. Um, but then to your point, this fan segmentation, right? You might have 3 million, 10 million followers on Instagram, but they're following you for a number of different reasons, right? And you don't have an ability to segment them and, and kind of give content to different subsets of the fan base in terms of, you know, whether it's demographics, geography, or sorts of reasons they follow you, right? There's a particular um, type of your music that they're very into, which is maybe different from some other work you've done. Maybe, you know, a subset of your following is actually primarily following you because of your activism or your nonprofit work. Um, but most of the content they get isn't related to that because you're trying to speak to everyone at once. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and the, the data ownership problem is only getting worse. You, you see uh, what's happened with some of the ticketing platforms that are out there. They're giving less and less data back to the artist every day. Uh, the, the social networks, um, you know, whether it be YouTube or Facebook or so forth, they have an algorithm. They're, they're in control deciding who reached, you know, which fans are reached. You obviously know um, several years ago, the social networks sort of changed the rules where 
our clients had to start paying to reach their own fans. They were essentially leasing their fans and it, it's become problematic uh, for them to, to drive sustainability in their business. And when you look at how artists or music artists in particular are making their money nowadays, uh, they, they don't make a lot of money off of the music itself. You know, they're getting, you know, you know, micro pennies on every play through Spotify. People aren't necessarily buying vinyl or buying CDs anymore. So they have to figure out ways to make money directly from them, uh, whether those be live streams, whether those be uh, selling merchandise, selling packages, fan club subscriptions and things like that. And if you don't own, if they don't own their their data list and knowing their fans and understanding what are those psychographics, what are the things that resonate with those fans, it becomes very, very, very challenging. You know, one thing that we're doing a little outside of music uh, is working with the uh, with, with Deepak Chopra's foundation and, you know, Deepak, very you know, famous transcendental medicine expert in the world, but he's also has a lot of interest in different philanthropic uh, activities around the world, whether it's bringing clean water to an area or addressing social justice in another area. And we're able to glean through the platform what an individual person's interests are, what resonates with them, what, are, what do they care about? And so when he's doing uh, fundraisers or trying to drive awareness about a certain uh, you know, matter that's occurring, having that rich data set that he can go back to and segment against allows him to really move the needle on driving uh, positive outcomes for the foundation. What's the conversion rate you're seeing for these communities? I know um, Patreon by comparison, when I've uh, researched them, have, uh, you know, on average, it's about 1% of a creator's social media following will convert to a paid patron, uh, it goes up to maybe 3% in the high end with a really niche engaged audience. Is that consistent with the conversion rate you're seeing? You know, we're a little bit higher. And I think the reason why is that we tend to recommend to our clients that they create what we refer to as a freemium model. Uh, and that basically means we want all the fans to feel like, regardless if they're paying, that they're welcome to join. And so when a client, we work with, you know, a, a music artist, uh, you can take any of any of our artists from Maroon 5, Zach Brown Band to Lumineers, they will often offer this community to all of their fans, you know, come in, register, be part of it, be part of the conversation. But then what they'll do as you're, as, as this uh, app or website is presented to the user, um, they will the system will, will tease, if you will, or show some of the premium a, uh, content elements. So maybe there's going to be a live stream tonight where the band's going to play three or four songs, or maybe they're going to release the new album 24 hours early, or maybe there's a piece of merchandise that is uh, exclusive uh, and there's only going to be uh, you know a thousand of this item and only, only the, the, the fans who are premium will be able to buy that. So what we see is we actually will get uh, much higher numbers, uh, usually between 10 and 20 percent of the social media fan base will register for the for the community and be active in there, uh, which is really good for the artists because they're still collecting that data. What we just talked about a few moments ago, that's still value, even if that user doesn't necessarily put in their credit card number immediately uh, to upgrade to premium. Um, it's still very good that they, they've come in and registered. Now, what we see is over time, and it, sometimes it may take a full year, we'll get to 
40, 50% of the users who registered to actually upgrade to premium because it's a little bit of that fear of being, you know, of missing out, as they say, where, you know, you see all your other friends that you've made friends inside the community that you communicate on a daily basis and exchange user generated content, they've upgraded to premium and they're the ones getting to hear that new song and they're the ones getting to participate in that live stream or, or being able to, 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 to score that exclusive piece of merch or that discount on, on something or first access to tickets, all the things that you would typically find in that premium subscription. And that fear of being missed out actually drives users over time to upgrade. So we actually see pretty significantly higher um, uh, conversion rates to paid. Additionally, we also see clients being able to charge more um, than what they would necessarily charge on Patreon because they, I think the user perceives a better value with all the little perks that I mentioned before, some of the things that the, the Patreon technology can't necessarily do right now. How hands-on uh, is your team in working with clients using the platform on best practices here, right? How to improve their conversion of, of free tier users into premium, how to reduce their churn, et cetera. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, you know, not all of our clients have ever, you know, ventured into a direct to consumer model. So they rely on us for a lot of coaching. And that's something that we're, you know, that we try to do. We, we always joke that we provide that white glove level of service. So when a client comes on with TopFan, we actually assign them an account team. And that account team is you know, three people typically. Uh, one is the day-to-day -day account manager. That's the person helping them uh, you know, make this look and feel the way they want. Because as I mentioned before, we're a white label platform. We're not templated. So we really take the design aesthetic very seriously. We want this to feel like an extension of everything else they're doing and get them you know, to market. So that account manager is helping them with features and getting their content in the content management system and getting the product launched. But there's another, uh, uh, you know, person on the team that's assigned to them, and that, and we, we call we call that person uh, the the um, the revenue and analytics member of the team, and their job is really to help our clients figure out how to maximize the revenues that they can generate. So our platform, obviously, as I mentioned before, generates revenue from subscription models. Uh, you know, monthly or yearly where people can upgrade to. We also do a lot of a la carte purchases. Those would be like your live streams. We have certain clients doing master classes or, or doing coursework where people can, you know, purchase a course and, or a master class and, and move through it. Uh, we also generate a lot of revenue for our clients uh, through, through ticketing. Uh, some of our clients have chosen to take some of their tickets uh, off a of Ticketmaster and do more of the general admission tickets. So our platform provides something very similar to like an Eventbrite ticketing system. So that's been lucrative for our clients, uh, both for, for virtual and in-person events, of course. Then, then there's the merchandising angle. We have all these great integrations with Shopify and all the, the major e-commerce systems. And we do some really cool stuff there. Um, that I can talk about later if you'd like. But um, you know the merchandising side of the, the business is significant. And then finally, uh, advertising and sponsorship. You know that's something that's that's a, a, a nice revenue generator for a lot of our clients. So we're getting very hands-on, Eric, and helping our clients figure out how to maximize the revenues because at the end of the day, if our clients can deliver something that delights their in fans and and helps them build uh, more loyalty, but at the same time creates significant amount of offset revenue for them, money that they've been missing because of the pandemic or other things that have been going on. That's a real win for them. Is your business model at TopFan a software subscription or given the hands-on support, is it a rev share model? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So when we first started the company, we were doing uh, we were a software subscription. That's that's the background that I have. That's uh, where I've come from, and, and my career is, is building subs- you know software as you know the acronym SaaS, software as a service uh, businesses. But what we learned is that for us to be able to do that, we had to charge a pretty pretty significant amount of money because of the high level of degree of, of technology that we're innovating. We're investing millions of dollars a year into R and D. We have a big team of developers. Um, you know, we provide that hands-on white le- white glove um, level of service. So the amount of money that we would have to charge was pretty significant, uh, you, almost $100,000 a year actually to do that. But what we decided to do about a year and a half ago was change our business model and move to one where we were able to cut our fees in half or even more in some cases, uh, and then take a small single digit revenue share. So it's a blend. We have a blend of a little bit of software as a service, um, which allows us to cover the variable cost of the servers and the bandwidth and all those things, which we provide unlimited to our clients. We don't charge by user or charge by, you know, you know, gigabyte or anything like that. Everything's unlimited from a from a, a you know user perspective. And then we do a small single digit, uh, you know, between five and nine percent typically revenue share on things that come from, you know, uh, digital subscriptions or a la carte purchases or some of the merchandising. And that allows our clients to essentially uh, get to profitability on day one. Our clients never really have to go out of pocket uh, to, to use us. They are making far more money than they are paying us. Um, and so they're profitable on day one. And I think that has made the top fan platform much more approachable because people don't have to go and come up with a lot of, you know, upfront capital expense, and they know that they're going to have a, you know, first class technology solution uh, that's generating significant income. And, and the income can be significant. I mean, we have clients that are in the high six figures, uh, mid seven figures, and we even have a, a few clients that have got into the upper seven figures. So it, it's real, it's real significant income for them. That's obviously, you know, very important right now when other forms of income, especially for music artists, has been disrupted by the pandemic. Who is top fan or even more broadly, this kind of freemium membership approach with super fans most effective for? I mean, have you found that there are certain types of you know, musicians in terms of genre or the you know, age demographic of their core fans where this makes a lot of sense versus others? You know, the fans just don't engage. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good question as well, and we have started to see some trends. We've done enough projects with enough clients over the past five years that we we definitely know uh, pretty early on if it's going to be successful. And actually, part of our business, uh, or I guess you could call it our sales model, if you will, is after a new client you know is introduced to us or reaches out to us, and we give them a demo of the product, and we show them all the bells and whistles, and walk them through some case studies and use cases of, of certain features and things we've done with other clients, we always recommended them for us to run a business case. And we have a member on the team who specializes in this, where he'll he'll go through a, a, about a 30 minute interview, understand their users, understand, you know, the demographics of those users, what the, what the artist is willing to do uh, in that freemium model, meaning what would they offer for free? What would they offer for premium, we take them through this thing. And then we actually model it using some of those conversion rates that we talked about earlier. Uh, we can actually forecast usually with a, about a 20% delta uh, on knowing what they'll actually do in year one, year two, year three, because we're able to benchmark 
off of what other clients have. And we understand the price elasticity of what the, the demographic they're going after is willing to pay. You know, we have some artists and I'll, I'll, men I'll mention a few here. Um, you know, we have a we have this great artist named LP who is um, has a enormous demographic, uh, enormous fan base of people living outside the United States, Latin America, Europe, etc. And, you know, they love her and they will do anything for her, but they don't necessarily have a lot of disposable income. So we've had to adjust the pricing uh, for those other markets. Um, we've also, uh, you know, we, we have, but you know, we have other clients, um, that are very, very, uh, niche. Uh, one is, uh, that I'd mention is, a, a, a kind of a, it's a, I don't know how you would explain it. I, I, I guess they would call it a horror rock, uh, band they're called ice nine kills. And these fans are fanatical. They, uh, they, they, everything that the lead singer Spencer does they're, um, they, they follow him. They're, 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 they're behind him. They love producing user-generated content. They're just a fantastic fan base. And it doesn't take a big fan base to build a really interesting business. There's a funny stat out there that's worth mentioning that if you have only 10,000 fans that would spend $100 with you over the course of the year buying tickets, merchandise, premium subscriptions, a la carte stuff, well, that in itself is a million-dollar business. I think that we've been, we've had to think, you know, because when we look at Instagram and Facebook, we've sort of been ingrained to think that you have to have millions and millions of fans to run a successful business. It turns out that's actually not the case at all. You just need to have 10,000 or so super fans and you can be running, uh, you know, a seven figure business. Yeah. How has COVID over the last year changed the business, right? I imagine on one hand, yeah, the lack of concerts, uh, the lack of sporting events has caused people to pull back, maybe engage less with you know, the, the artists, the teams that they're big fans of. On the other hand, maybe you know, because of the lack of in-person events, more of the planning, more of the kind of content production is being channeled into digital communities like this. Yeah. So the what's been interesting is uh what what we saw in the in the first let's say the first three months or so of the pandemic we we saw a significant drop in fan club memberships and if you you know go back to what i said a few moments ago the areas that our clients are generating income through the the platform we provide to them uh the the you know the subscriptions the fan club memberships is a significant part of that i would say you know, it depends on the client, but on average, probably 50, 60 percent of the revenue that they generate comes from their subscription. And a lot of those people have it set to auto renew. So, you know, they're, they're it's on a yearly basis. You know, maybe it's twenty dollars a year, thirty dollars a year. We have clients all the way up to about fifty dollars a year. And we were seeing significant amount of churn in the first uh, few days or first you know, few months of the, the pandemic. And of course, that was because concerts were being canceled and tours are being canceled. And one of the biggest perks of the traditional fan club subscription model was first access to tickets, right? Uh, you, as, you, as you probably know, Ticketmaster will announce the tickets, but usually there's a few days before it goes on what's called the general on sale. They'll reserve a couple of waves of ticket purchasing where people can buy those tickets ahead of time. So if you're a diehard Maroon 5 fan and you want to be able to make sure you're in the first 10 rows of the, of the stadium, uh, you're going to want to participate in the pre-sale because otherwise the bots get it and there's no chance that you're ever going to go to a good a ticket to the show. So that was a big, like I said, catalyst towards people uh, buying these things. And people were saying, well, if there's going to be no shows this summer. Why should I renew? So we had to help our clients retool significantly what their subscription offering was. So, you know, we obviously invested in live technologies for our clients to put on live concerts. Uh, we created 
things like Ask Me Anything chats where the artists could go online and take questions from the users. We created virtual meet and greets. Uh, we created a lot of digital first solutions for our clients. We did a album listening parties where even if it was just an audio only experience, kind of like, you know, you know, which is of course everybody's excited about with Clubhouse, where you could just be listening to the song together with everybody else at the exact same time and people could chat and, and react to hearing that. So we try to come up with some really interesting technologies during the, the pandemic to, uh, to, to try to stabilize the subscriptions. Now we're starting to see clients, you know, reannouncing tours and we're starting, you know, to uh, you know, obviously see a pickup for that. But mo all in all, we were able to uh, keep it just a little under what it was before the pandemic because we created all of these digital first solutions. And I think the clients, to your original question, really appreciated having the ability to continue to interact with these these fans, because the fans were still listening to the music. The fans were still impassioned. Yeah, they couldn't go to see concerts, which we all know is the live music experience very important. But I think we did a good job helping our clients do the next best thing, which was interacting with these fans virtually and continuing to stay relevant during an uncertain time. To zoom in on music specifically a little bit, I know, I think about a year and a half ago, I did a research project looking at um, basically how little the top musicians, particularly kind of pop musicians in the world made use of their newsletters or any sort of, um, you know, special membership um, community. Basically, you know, best practices media companies use to own their audience, to better monetize um, their audience. And, you know, A, it was surprising how few, um, how few artists were doing anything beyond social media in any serious way, how many technically had a newsletter that never actually sent anything. Um, and in my conversations with a number of talent managers, one of the recurring points of feedback was this tension between, you know, an artist has limited time to create content and they have a strong bias to put that content out where it can reach as many people as opposed to making it exclusive to um, a community, uh, you know, whether it's a paid community or otherwise a special, more gated community. Um, how have you navigated that and, and kind of the resources that any artist or their team has to only create so much content? Yeah, it's it, it, again another good question, and you know that it, it, you could you could take what you just talked about the newsletter and expand that onto the traditional artist website. There's just, you know, there's not a lot of new content uh, in, on, on those websites, and newsletters. And I think that's probably why some of the artists, um, you know, just went dormant. You know, if you've, if you've gone to any music artist website, you've probably seen them all. It starts off with, you know, the logo at the top. Then maybe there's an embedded YouTube video of their most recent music video. Then you scroll down a little bit further and you might see the tour schedule. You scroll down a little bit further and you see some merchandise and then links out to their social media stuff. Every artist website is basically the same. And once you've gone to it once, you know, what's the reason to come back? And I, you know, I think what you're talking about with the newsletters, they're, the musicians are very much in cycles, right? They have their cycle where they announce the new album, then they have their cycle where they announce the new tour, and then they have a cycle where they announce the new merchandise for that tour. And that's the things they send out in the newsletters, which really aren't all that interesting, to be honest. Um, and I think that's why you, you don't see a lot of action. We've tried to help with that a little bit by, you know, creating uh, an interface, uh, as you've probably heard the terms UI, UX, user experience, user interface. 
that is a little bit more dynamic. So when you log on as a fan to these artist apps or these artists websites, that every time you come on, it, it's different, it's, it's fresh, it's new. Part of that is leveraging what we've learned about people, that psychographic and demographic profile. Uh, but a lot of it is taking the reliance off the artist to constantly pr be producing new things and pushing that onus onto the fan. Um, that's why the community is important. It goes back to that three C's. You've got the content, which is a mix of some live stuff and some some on-demand stuff that we create that, that the artist uploads into our system, and then we try to serve up what's relevant to that user based on what we know about them. But then we get to the second C, and I always say people come for the content, but they stick around for the community, and that's where the fans are producing stuff. And fans are incredibly creative. You know, they're 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 putting up. You know, they're doing their own covers of songs. They're doing fan art. They're talking about other things that are going on in the industry as a whole. They're talking about things going on in their life. I think these these fans all have you know a bond because they they are impassioned. Remember, this is the top ten to twenty percent of the fans. These are the super fans. They're impassioned about this band, meaning they have a lot of similarities already. And they like having their own social network where they can interact with each other and they can talk. I mean, we have clients that do easily 20, 25,000 pieces of user generated content from the fans every single day. They're producing so much user generated content and that keeps things interesting. So contrast. And then, of course, we talked about the commerce where we're, we're produce, showing them interesting merchandise drops and doing other things that are dynamic in that area to keep them engaged and, and hopefully spending money with the artist. And so you contrast what I just described of a dynamic platform versus the traditional newsletter or the website. And you can see why they're having more success with engagement and sustainable engagement. And that's what they're really looking for. Can one of these communities be successful without the artists themselves directly engaging and having a presence? Like, have you seen scenarios where it works, even though it's pretty much only the management team or the label behind an artist posting content and engaging with fans? You know, I, I think it can be successful, but it's it's rare. Um, it takes it takes the right set of fans and it takes the right management team that's doing those things. Now we we have some clients like that. I won't you know, I won't mention their names, uh, but there are some clients that are less engaged and uh, they're using us um, to, you know, take over the existing fan club that they were running before allowing it to generate that in that sort of mailbox money, as they say, people buying, you know, the membership again, looking for the first access to the tickets and then the management's going in and putting in content. Um, and, it, and it works. I mean, I don't want to say that it, it doesn't, but and we have clients that have generated some decent revenue on that. But you can tell the difference in the community. You, you can tell the feel uh, when you see what's going on in the community aspect. It, it's, you know, you, you go from people that are really always on, checking in there constantly, being involved, being delighted by the interaction from the artist versus just kind of like, okay, this is here. This is where I can get access to that content. This is where I can get my first access to tickets. This is where I can get a little bit of uh, community. So I, I we always encourage our artists to, um, to stay engaged. Now, when I, I mentioned earlier that business case that we will run with clients, that's some of the questions that we asked during the business case. How involved are you going to be? What are you going to offer the fans? Because that goes into what we recommend the pricing to be. If you're going to have an artist that's actively involved and in giving exclusives and, and, and being involved, you can charge more. 
than you can if it's just going to be more of a passive type of fan club model. And and those are, like I said, those are the things we we look at when we make our recommendations about what a client should charge. What's the minimum you have to see there for um, kind of the membership model to work as far as the frequency of new content that's released or the amount of content that's truly exclusive to that community and not on social media or elsewhere? Yeah, I don't know if we have a hard and fast number that we've developed, um, but I would say one of the things that we do, again, that kind of white glove model that we're helping with our clients is we help them establish a content calendar. Um, and that's been a successful way for us to manage and mitigate an artist that maybe wants to be less involved. Um, we, you know, we, and we've also, you know, I should take us one step back and mention that we've tried uh, to innovate technologies to even for that artist that might be a little less shy or a little less uh, willing to spend their time, we've tried to create things to allow them to do that. For example, that artist, the same app or, or website that the consumer, their fan goes to, they can go to and when they log on, they see a different set of uh, a special set of features that they can use. Like they can just publish a picture directly or they can publish a short video or a short audio only clip. Um, or go live or do an ask me anything chat. So we're trying to make it really easy uh, for the artist to be able to, if they're feeling uh, impulsive that day and they want to share a picture of their new puppy or uh, something around the house or whatever they want to do, we try to allow them to do that. But that said, going back to your original question, um, you know, when we develop these content calendars, uh, we work with them and understand that every artist is different. Every client is different. Some are more private than others. And we try to figure out what are the things they're going to do. But we say that there should be something that is coming from the artist or the artist camp, meaning their management, that we're doing some, one thing a week, something that's coming out, whether it's a, uh, just a picture, whether it's a, a sneak peek of a video, whether it's uh, doing one of these Ask Me Anything interviews or going live or things like that. Once a week is something. It can be very small. It can be a poll. It can be a quiz. But something once a week really needs to come out. Otherwise, the, the end users start to wonder, like, why did I pay for this premium subscription? How does pricing tie into um, that content posting frequency? If a given community has a annual membership versus a monthly membership, right? I imagine if it's a monthly membership, there's more pressure to create enough content to get people to renew each month. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, when, when a... When a, when a um, fan is on a monthly membership, they have the prerogative to decide to end at any time. And if they're not seeing value, uh, then they're going to cancel. And we've done some analysis on that where we can you know, graph out what it looks like if an artist goes dormant for a couple of, you know, a, a month or so, we'll see a significant amount of churn because of that. So what we try to do when we offer up the the, the, the subscription offering. Again, remember, we're, we're that freemium model. We want the fans to come in. We will have a mix of some free content, maybe mostly aggregated content that you could find other places on the internet, like all the music videos from YouTube are there. All the music, you know, we, we have an integration with Spotify and with Apple Music. So if a client, if an artist doesn't own their masters and has to stream music to remain compliant, we have that integration. So what the artist will do is create their favorite playlist of their different songs and things like that. Um, you'll have, you know, photos that are in the public domain already. You'll have um, other just, you know, articles that were maybe on, you know, in, in a certain magazine like Billboard magazine. So you have this sort of aggregation of free content. 
But as our platform lays out in that UI UX I, I referenced earlier, we're showing things as you're scrolling through your feed of content that the system is serving up to you. We're occasionally showing a piece of content that will have a little lock icon next to it. And when you click it, a little pop-up will show up and say, hey, this is some content that's exclusive for the paid members. Uh, we'd love for you to become a paid member. Here's the benefits you get. And so, Eric, this is the point where you're basically telling the user that, hey, if you're going to put in your credit card now and start paying either monthly or yearly, this is what you're going to expect to get. And those typically are exclusive content, like this thing that you just clicked that you wanted to watch, but you can't watch. It means that we're going to give you maybe 20% off on all merchandise. So we have the ability in our system to show two different prices, kind of like Costco, member price, non-member price, and exclusive member-only merchandise drops where there's only, you know, merch is only available for the members. Of course, the first access to the tickets, right? But, if, you know, with the pandemic, that sort of had to be put on the back burner. But now it's coming back, of course, um, and other things. And, you know, like maybe the artist will say, I'm going to come on live once in a while and chat with you. We're going to do uh, once a quarter, we're going to do a, a live virtual concert. So this is when the artist is having to decide what they're going to offer up. And that's uh, when, you know, the, the, the pricing comes into play. And, you know, we have artists that say, no, I'm not going to, you know, I don't, I'm not going to do anything exclusive besides give people discounts on merch and pre-sale tickets. That's all I'm in for. And we'll tell them that we recommend that they're, they set that expectation up very clearly. So there's no missed expectations. And we'd recommend that they price it accordingly based on what they're going to do. So it's like anything in life. It's about making sure that your customer understands uh, what they're going to get. And then it's important for you to fulfill on what you said you're going to give your customer. How do you look at the, the landscape of other platforms that are out there right now for artists to use as if you're in the position of a white label platform that has a lot of functionality, you can you know, use it for any number of things. We've seen a whole wave of new creator platforms rise up, particularly over the last year in the music industry, like with numerous, you know, live event, live concert, uh, streaming platforms. Um, some of the largest social platforms are adding more paid membership functionality or tipping functionality to help. Uh, creators monetize their fans. Looking at the the broader landscape, what shifts do you see happening, and and how does it affect top fans' approach? Yeah, it's a it's it is interesting to see how, how many other social platforms are out there really you know taking into account the, the 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 tough spot that some of these creators are going through right now and helping them monetize. Um, for us. We've always, you know, remained true to our ethos, which has always been if a if a artist builds their mansion on rented land, at some point that landlord's going to change the rules on them, and they're going to be in trouble. And uh, and so we've always told our clients, and our contracts are very clean about it. You own the data; it's one hundred percent white labeled. You're in full control of everything. If you down the road decide you want to go a different direction and leave TopFan, we'll help you migrate off and go somewhere else. We'll package up all of your data, all of the user-generated content, all of your content, um, and help you move. Thankfully, we haven't had a lot of those, but um, you know, we really do believe that the artist, at the artist or the creator or, whatever, or the influencer, whatever you want to call them, they need to, to have their own platform, uh, that they they're in full control of everything about it. And you know, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's sort of what we've done. So what we know, we're always looking at what's new, uh, in the space. Um, you know, we just are in the process of adding a tipping functionality ourselves right now. So people can, you know, users can tip other users, users can tip artists. 
you know, we have, um, you know, the ability to, to do virtual meet and greets now. Um, we and schedule, you know, people purchase masterclasses. So kind of whatever the hot trend is right now in the space, uh, we want to make sure we provide that to the client, but do it in a manner that is 100% in their name, where they own everything uh, as far as data and respect to monetization and not have to fragment the users at the end of the day. Because if you're telling your your users to go over to this platform for the live stream and this platform to get the virtual meet and greets and this platform to buy tickets and this platform to buy merchandise, that's not a great user experience. Um, we have a technology called Digital Wallet that's built into our system where once the users purchase anything, whether it was a concert ticket, a piece of merchandise, a subscription, they never have to re-enter their credit card again. They never have to re-enter their, their, their shipping address. Uh, we're able to get people uh, through the entire e-commerce function in less than 10 seconds. It's as fast as Amazon when you're purchasing things. So by that, we're reducing friction, but we're also, and I think more importantly, we're letting the, the, the client, our music artist, whomever, know that 360 degree view of their customer because all that data is in that goes to your point, that one single CRM where we know everything about that user, everything they've purchased in one place so that our clients can build those segments and again, maximize the lifetime value of that fan. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining today. Oh, it was a pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Monetizing Media Podcast. You can join my Monetizing Media newsletter and find other resources, like a database of investors who focus on media and entertainment startups, at monetizingmedia.com.